Hello, good evening, and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, we'll be hearing about offshore wind energy and how Ireland has been dubbed the potential Saudi Arabia of renewable energy. Last weekend saw a conference entitled Renewable Energy Opportunity, hosted by the National Maritime College of Ireland and sponsored by the Simply Blue Group. It was a coming together of marine experts, wind energy developers, fishers, government agencies and environmentalists to discuss how Ireland needs to prepare to get our renewable energy targets online by 2030. The government's stated aim is to have offshore wind providing 3 gigawatts of electricity in 8 years time, enough to power, we're told, 5 million homes. With fuel prices surging right now, the conference was told by multiple speakers that while fossil fuel has traditionally flowed east to west, renewable energy will flow west to east, and that Ireland, given our vast offshore wind energy potential, will be at the head of that pipeline. We heard about two types of wind farms. The first, relatively close to shore and built on the seabed in shallow waters. And then the second and biggest, giant offshore floating platforms, hundreds of them, each the size of the Eiffel Tower, out on the continental shelf. Experts from all fields involved were there and I spoke to many of them for seascapes. First was Noel Coniff, who's CEO of Wind Energy Ireland. Our opportunity here is absolutely enormous if we put in place the right investment and structures in order for us to be able to capture it. Uh, We started off our journey on offshore wind energy in Ireland in 2004 with the Arclo Wind Firm, which was one of the largest wind firms at the time in the world, and we really have gone... uh, We've gone quiet since then in terms of development, but we have a target in place now, we have projects in place, and we can really capture it over the next 10 years. We have a new Marine Development Act, Marine Planning Act. Is that going to make a difference? That's a huge part of the future of the industry. Without that, it wasn't possible for offshore wind energy to uh, apply for planning permission to to construct over the next uh, 10 years or so. The government getting that in place by the end of last year was a huge part in in the first steps we now have to take in terms of delivering our targets for offshore wind energy. So it's a very welcome development. We have a lot of projects. You listen about five on the east coast, one on the west coast in the pipeline at the moment. What kind of time scale are we talking about? So those particular projects are the first phase of projects which will develop between now and 2030. Uh, We're talking about trying to progress them into the planning system over the next 12 to 18 months and then they'll begin construction in about 2026, 2027 and then begin providing clean energy to Ireland from 2028 onwards. That's the first group of projects. There is a second group of projects which are also going to be uh, in development between now and 2030. They're still being defined but they'll be off the east coast, south coast and west coast and ultimately we see maybe seven to ten projects being developed over the next eight years to help power Ireland by 2030. What percentage of power by 2030 do you hope will be provided? So right now about 40% of our electricity comes from renewable sources, predominantly onshore wind energy and we're going to continue expanding onshore but offshore wind energy has a huge opportunity to provide us with between 30 to 40% of our power between now and 2030 and that's going to be a big part in trying to hit our government target which is 80% of our renewable, of our electricity coming from renewables by 2030. Now we've had quite a bit of talk today here about the number of jobs that are going to come on stream, the skills we're going to need to do all of this, the development of ports because everything has to be shipped out. 
absolutely. We're going to need to really invest in our third level institutes in reskilling and upskilling people to be able to capture the investment in this sector. Um, right now, uh, we have about five to 6,000 people employed in onshore wind energy, so we're, we're a world leader in that, and now it's time to translate those skills into offshore wind energy, and we think that there's up to about 10,000 jobs in various sectors that could be created between now and 2030 for that, and the opportunity beyond that is uh, limitless, really. It just depends on what our ambition is out, out towards 2050 and beyond. It was put by one speaker today that we are at the start of a revolution which is as big as the internet, it is as big as anything else in renewable energy. Indeed, our uh, our sea area is seven times our land area. We have a huge opportunity compared to other countries in Europe. We're often being called the Saudi Arabia of Europe when it comes to renewable energy. So we're like that country that just hasn't started digging for oil yet. And thankfully our oil is renewable. It's wind energy, it's clean energy, and it can help not only decarbonise Ireland, but also bring jobs into the sector and really help our energy security too. Captain Michael McCarthy, formerly of Corkport and now working in the offshore wind energy development area, told me about the sheer scale of the floating wind energy platforms, which would be located 30 to 50 kilometres off the south and west coasts. It's absolutely enormous. I mean, if you think 100 metres square, this thing is going to be floating out the harbour. But the height of it, I think people don't understand. It's literally, the blades are 100 and 18 metres long, each blade. So you, in order for that to keep clear of the water, it's got to be up a certain height. So the towers are going to be about 150 metres plus the blades. So these things are going to be literally from sea level up to the top of the blades is going to be somewhere in the region of 270, 280 metres. Now that's nearly the size of the Eiffel Tower. Okay. It's actually 80 to 100 metres taller than the Cathedral in Cove if you're standing next to it. And how many of these, if we're to get to the targets, are we going to need? Well, if you look at one of these units, let's say 15 megawatts, uh, you're going to need, in order for one gigawatt, you're looking at 65, 66 of these units. So three gigawatt up to 2030 is 200 of these colossals. And then the government policy is to have 30 gigawatts. At 30 gigawatts, you're looking at 2,000 of these. How are we going to get them out there? With difficulty. <laughs> so, but you go, it's going to be a huge opportunity for maritime skills and training. It's because each of these is going to have to be manoeuvred, towed, under very strict towage until it's clear of the harbour. Even at that stage, then, it's going to need to be towed out 20, 30, 40, 50 kilometres, anchored, moored. So the jobs, the skills of the people are going to be involved in that. For the next 50 years, it's going to be absolutely phenomenal. One of the ships, one of the photographs you showed us here when you're giving your talk, it has a depth of 19 metres, am I right? Do we have any port in the country that can handle something like that? We do. Um, we do. We have actually three ports. Uh, we have Cork Harbour. Uh, if you look at the area off Whitegate Roads, uh, there's an area there at 19 metres. You have the Shannon Estuary, which has that area, and you also have Bantry Bay. And the, both uh, the three of these locations would would have the capacity to bring these what they're called semi-submersibles so they come in with these units on board um, and then you sink the ship down so when you float this off it's floating at 11 meters so the ship then is down 19 meters if you like and then once these are off the deck they come back up again to about 10 12 meters so they're floated off the deck what happens then floated off the deck taken in hand by two three tugboats 
and then brought alongside the quay where then the towers will be assembled, the blades will be put on that on top of the nacelles and then it'll have to be manoeuvred a couple of times. So again the job opportunities, I keep going back to that and the skills level with the people is going to be phenomenal going forward. Well, we need huge infrastructure. Oh, absolutely. If you look at our commercial ports, they are commercial. They need to keep Ireland moving from imports and exports and all the issues surrounding that. So the infrastructure required for this, I would hazard a guess at anywhere north of 100 million to two, 300 million per port. And we're going to need two or three of the ports working in tandem in order to fulfil Ireland's ambition going forward. And so it's huge areas in these ports just to handle these turbines? Massive areas. I mean, you know, you're, you're going to be bringing in blades, if you think of it. Three blades for one unit is going to be the length of Crow Park. Each one is the length of Crow Park or, or, or whatever. So you're going to need 50, 100 acres adjacent to deep water uh, in order to handle these. So it's it's... Ireland is going to be very limited in the ports that it can use. I mentioned three. I'm sure there are others with ambitions, but we have to be realistic when we're looking at ports that, you know, you either have the infrastructure, you have the depth of water, you don't have the depth of water. If you're trying to manufacture depth of water, it's hugely costly from an ongoing maintenance point of view. Are we going to get there? We'll get there, absolutely. We, you know, we have, we have five, six, seven years. I think Government needs to really wake up. We're hearing a lot of words from government. We're hearing a lot of words from the department. Words are not going to put 100, 150 million into a development. We're, we're, we're really encouraged by the new MARA, uh, the setup of MARA coming down the track in hopefully in January next year. We're hoping for a one-stop shop in relation to planning, uh, consenting, foreshore, all of these issues, unless that's done and unless we really wake up, because we'll be into 2023, you know, we're looking at starting this deployment in 2027, consenting to build that infrastructure is going to take two or three years. So working back from 2028, we have to be doing it now and not next year and not next year. But the politicians, stop talking and get on with it and start seriously looking at the investment in the ports. Central to the conference at the Maritime College was a discussion between the wind energy developers and fishers. Kathleen Yehey from Ring in County Waterford said that as a fisher and company owner, she's concerned that the fishing industry will be forgotten in the rush to build wind farms. Farming is appreciated for producing meat um, Ireland's fish will be coming from foreign fishing vessels and that's, that I think is policy and that wind farming will, instead of cohabitating, will actually take over from our industry, especially the inshore small boats that are dependent and that keep lights on in the coastal communities. Because you don't believe it's possible to fish around where these installations are going to be? I'd be very worried that you would. I think that, you know, even though they will say, and look, let's face it, a lot of people in those small villages, you know, not a lot of people around Ireland, like, will, and, and, you know, will look at these wind farms as being biz, big business. They're not there to protect my my, 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 my indigenous industry like they're there to make money yes it is needed green energy but how do we make it in such a way that you know that it doesn't interfere with a hundred year old tradition and a tradition that's green because we don't burn that much carbon footprint you know if we can get fish off our shore bring it bring it a few miles ashore and, and use it in our local communities that's all good too so like that side of the green has to be looked at as well 
Yeah, because you described it as fish coming on shore. You're being yeah. sold locally in local restaurants. That money isn't travelling. That money is going into the local community. It's going into the local net maker. It's going into the oil companies. It's going into the supermarket around the corner. And it's going into the local restaurant where somebody, you know, that has hires iron so it's it's a constant you know and and uh, coming in in flow of, of cash like really into areas and also tourism people like to come to fishing areas and they like to see the you know the natural activities as well okay maybe wind farms will have have a place i'm saying i'm not saying they don't have a place i just don't know if they need to do is there is there a need for them to do so much damage to to fishing areas. Why why do they have to go exactly where or, or how close can they? Or, I don't know. If we were talking about farming, if we were talking about putting a certain amount of wind turbines into farmers' fields, um, there would probably be already compensation spoken of. Mm-hmm. There'd be, you know, so but much. You, you don't want compens- compensation. We don't want it. No, we don't want it. But yeah. we do need to know how many days we can fish. So, like, if you're allowed fish a hundred days now because of weather, but if that hundred days if are reduced, what much reduction? How many days? Like, we heard one guy. T- yeah, I spoke to one guy yesterday who said that we'd like to be able to fish one day for fish and fish another day for wind. What does that mean? You described fishing as not a job. It's a tradition, a way of life. It's a way of life. Most people, like if it was a job just where you went out to earn money, there wouldn't be anyone doing it because it isn't an easy place to be. No more than it is for a farmer who gets up at two o'clock in the morning because his cow's calving. Um, It's a way of life. It's a traditional way of life. It's a pride. It's a hunter that goes out to sea waiting for the weather to get calm, waiting for the shoal to come in. And it's very much embedded in people's way of life. And it's embedded in parishes, even, and in communities, not even in the ones, that f- f- the fishermen that go to sea, but it's in the com- that community who, like I said, will turn over at the pier and sit and talk and look out to sea. All of that is part of it. And do they want to look out at massive big turbines? And will it reduce their energy bill if they're there? Do you think there's a way out, there's a compromise to be made? I think there needs to be if we're to go forward. I don't know what it is. I wouldn't know the answers, but I do think that these companies need to be pushed to the limit to show that they're using the very best possible. This is the very best possible thing for us to go into. And is there is there is there cert, has there been enough study done to show that the damage it does to the environment is you know is is there is there you know is is that small enough to compensate? Like, is it doing? Is it going to create more? Long term, I don't know. I don't have the answers and they need to be able to tell us because we need to get it right. New Irish companies are setting up to take their part in the new industry. Master Mariner Shane Heverin has returned to Ireland and started one of those companies. Yeah, the company's name is Agin Marine. We're a new start company founded in 2021. So we're just a year old at this month. Uh, myself and two colleagues, Robert Keneally, a mas- uh, another Master Mariner, and Barry Ward, a third Master Mariner, formed this whilst we kind of observed how things were moving with legislation and everything with an eye on the wind farm market in Ireland. You are a Master Mariner. You've, said you've been around the globe several times. What kind of ships have you worked on? Uh, I started off on oil tankers, 300,000 tonne dead weight, uh, about 370 metres in length. My first ship was in Taiwan. We sailed from there over to the Emirates, back to Japan, and back to the Emirates again. That took all of about four months, and I went home. Um, my first ship as a deck officer, then after I qualified, was joining Singapore. We were one of the first ships into Iraq after the Second Gulf War. 
and we were escorted into in Basra. there into Basra Oil Terminal, all the glory there. Um, we navigated in with charts that warned us that it was a mined area. We had a military escort of about eight vessels around us. We loaded there. We sailed for Long Beach in the U.S., heading east all the time. Did, got off in Long Beach and came home. So literally circumnavigated the globe in that one stint. You were here. You were here talking about offshore renewables, particularly the floating turbines. What kind of ships and what support network do, do they need? If, in my opinion, we're looking at medium to large size anchor handlers for operating or for setting moorings off the west coast of Ireland. It's a challenging environment. But the skill set and the vessels are there already from the offshore oil and gas, particularly in the North Sea. Our company individually and as a business has operated in the North Sea, but we've set anchors in Brazil in over 2,000 metres of water. We've been involved off East Coast Africa in similar projects. And we think we'll bring these skills back to Ireland and we should make a positive impact in the marine operations in setting moorings off the west and southwest of Ireland. How do you even operate in 2,000 metres plus? With great difficulty and lots of swearing. <laughs> what, what size are these ships and what kind of crew do they have? Uh, the ships are surprisingly small. The anchor handlers we're talking about are approximately 80 to 90 metres in length. But their large tugs is possibly a better way to look at it with uh, clear working decks and specialist equipment. So the crew would be approximately 18, 20 people. Uh, made up of a master, chief officer, two deck officers. You'd have four or five engineers in the engine room and you'll have four to six ratings on deck plus the catering staff as well. You spoke about the number, the support staff, everything, the industry, what this industry is going to bring to this country because you said that a project could have a thousand people working on it at any one time. Yeah, currently I'm involved with a sea green, sea green project off the east coast of Scotland. That is eight or nine large vessels ranging from 70 people on board to four or 500 on the largest one. So I see maybe a thousand people at any one time there. These people, even though the, the ships may uh, come from different countries, once they're on location, they need support. They need crew changes. They need logistical assistance with agents, chandlers. Food, you imagine how much toilet paper even that a thousand people are going to use in a week. So there's, there's a huge benefit to the local economy with that. What kind of shore infrastructure do we need? We need ports, deep water ports, do large areas. Them? Do we have them? Not presently. Not that I'm aware of anyway in down south. I'd say the closest we have is Belfast. So that's not going to sit too well with some people. Okay, so what do we have to do? We need to get the planning sorted out. We need to push our ministers. We need to get decisions made rapidly because the people I've spoken to in some of the offshore wind companies have expressed frustration and disappointment with the lack of decision making. Okay, we have a new Marine Planning Act. Let's keep it going. It's not over the line yet. You know, we need yeah. to see this take effect. Um, we work closely with one company in Norway and I fre frequently get calls there inquiring about how things are going, expressing dismay at the, the delays here as we have it and wondering when things are going to kick off. Because, as I stated during, the, uh, during my talk, these are, these are large risk-adverse companies. They're going to go where they know the project is going to go pretty smoothly. These are multi-billion dollar projects. So they want to see them go smoothly without delays. Any, any downtime, you're talking about millions of pounds a day. Thousands... Tens of thousands of pounds per minute even.
Okay, are we going to get it over the line? We will. We'll get there. There are environmental concerns, though. Attractor Nivrin of the Irish Environmental Network told me about some of hers. As anybody, I think, in Ireland um, understands that we do need to decarbonise our energy, um, but we need to do it in the right way. Uh, and there are huge concerns within the environmental sector in relation to what we are doing and the way we're going about it, both in terms of our inadequacies of our legislative framework and very particularly in relation to the failure that we have successively, over many, many years, failed to protect our marine environment and our marine biodiversity. Um, but also for coastal communities, there's a huge concern in relation to the impact that it will have on them. Uh, and the you, you, one word you said, you yeah. want to avoid a gold rush. Absolutely. I mean, if, if one thinks back to those old, very politically incorrect Wild West movies, you know, where everybody moves into town and, uh, you know, the saloons fill up and, you know, the hotels fill up and, you know, the shops and everything's getting very exciting. And then the gold goes and the whole community is left devastated. It has had this massive inflation, which will displace people you know, in local communities because they won't be able to, to compete with the rents. Uh, and and you know, for just local housing, all those different types of things that we take for granted. And there is a real danger that the sustainable, long-term indigenous industries that those communities that have relied upon in terms of sustainable fishing or sustainable tourism will be compromised. One of the final speakers at the Maritime College was Vice Admiral Mark Mellet, former head of the Defence Forces and now founder of a company called Green Compass. He spoke about the historic opportunity presented for Ireland by wind energy. I spoke to him and he first told me about his new role. Well, I have spent over 40 years in the Naval Service and uh, most of that and a lot of that time has been off our West Coast um, I suppose underpinning the sovereignty and sovereign rights of our state and that has given me a certain experience in terms of uh, the rights of the citizens of Ireland in terms of sovereign rights. Sovereign rights translate into the property rights of the citizens and to the state itself. And marrying that with my PhD which is in ecosystem governance and the protection of vulnerable marine ecosystems, I feel in a strong position to give advice, strategic advice uh, to industry and also to civil society in terms of NGO community and also in the context of helping the formulation proper uh, policy in terms of ecosystem governance. You spoke at today's conference about this wind energy, offshore wind energy being the fourth opportunity for Ireland. We've failed a couple of others before. Yeah, well, I think uh, it's a really historical period in the history of our state now. And over 100 years ago, you know, our forebears were fighting for our sovereignty. And sovereign rights that are not upheld are more imagined than real. The right to live in a civil society is a human right of every man, woman and child where people are free, where the institutions of state function and where the vulnerable are protected. But one of the interesting points about the treaty that gave us our sovereignty back in 1921 was that Article 6 said until we had the wherewithal to provide for our own coastal defence, it would be provided by His Imperial Majesty's forces. And so the institutions of state stood up, but nobody looked to the sea. And institutionalised was a culture which actually led to a sea blindness that prevailed for 100 years. And I think we saw the second time where that hit us in the context of the common fisheries policy and the negotiation around the acquis that ultimately came to divide the total allowable catch. And our fishing industry was in a disadvantaged position and it remains to, to this very date. And then we had the third era which was relating to the hydrocarbon side. I would say there is actually between 
uh, 500 billion to a trillion euros of yet to be found hydrocarbon resources. In hindsight, it's probably beneficial that it hasn't yeah, been found. The oil is still there. But here we are in the fourth era now, the next green industrial revolution, a remarkable opportunity where Ireland, on its plans with regards to at least five gigawatts of offshore renewable by 2030, 51% reduction in carbon footprint, and greater than 30 gigawatts after that, this is the opportunity for Ireland to power Europe and give Europe energy sustainability, energy self-sufficiency, to give it the ability to speak with the language of power in these very challenging times. Can we do it? Will we do it? I think, uh, I think Nelson Mandela said it, it always seems impossible until it's done. And I think the people we had in here, I didn't see any dissenting voice with regards to the metal required. Everything from state to civil society institutions to enterprise, all were in lockstep with regards to the requirement to do it. So of course we can do it. Vice Admiral Mark Mellet, and thanks to everybody who spoke to me at that conference, because the Russian-induced fuel crisis at the moment has put a renewable energy potential front and centre stage. And if you want to hear more from that conference, Offshore Renewable Energy, you can watch the whole thing on the Simply Blue Group website. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.